News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, not just a Netflix TV show anymore. The real life saga of what is going on with the royal family in the UK has been captivating people all over the world. So let's get the latest on it now. Joining us is Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. All right. So what is the latest on this? I understand that Buckingham Palace put out a statement yesterday. Yeah, a statement was released by the palace on behalf of uh, her, the Her Majesty the Queen. Um, and I'm just going to read it out to you. It's very short. It's basically four sentences. But I, I think the tone and the wording is important. So the statement that came out yesterday afternoon is uh, as follows. The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much-loved members of the family. Pardon mm. me, much-loved family members. Um, so, so obviously, the, the tone here is very warm, it's very personal, it's very compassionate, but it does say, we're not talking about this. So right. It's, we're going to deal with this as a family. Interesting. But the world is talking about it. No kidding, right? Like that's the world. I keep thinking the story is going to die down, but it just doesn't seem to be doing that. I mean, yesterday it was going on and on and on. And now this whole situation involving Pierce Morgan happened where he's off the show because of his comments about Meghan Markle. What is going on there? Yeah, um, uh, you know, obviously, I don't I don't follow what happens at other TV stations too closely. But you know, he has had a running commentary, a running negative commentary on Meghan Markle. Apparently, at one point, he thought they had a friendship. Um, I, I don't know if they were friends. He kind of portrays it that way. Yeah, exactly. um, but he says, you know, she quote, unquote, cut him off. Um, but he has he's been very negative about her on, on air. He challenged whether or not she really was in crisis with her mental health. Um, you know, that's, you know, she apparently had complained and there were many, many complaints to the broadcast regulator about such an allegation being made. Um, one of his co-hosts uh, challenged him just saying, like, we have to have this conversation. It's a difficult conversation, but it needs to be had. That exchange prompted him to get up from the set on yeah. air and walk off. Um, he later resigned. Um, but I think that really shows this is a difficult conversation. Race and, and racism and institutional racism and legacy, uh, it, it, it's hard to talk about, not only here in the UK, and it seems to be very difficult to talk about here in the UK, but of course in Canada and in the US, but it, it, it is a conversation that people are trying to have, but it is being squashed. Mm-hmm. What is the like public sentiment kind of been like to this interview and the reaction to all of that in the UK? It really is mixed. Um, there is a, a, a number of people who are saying, you know, this is this is unfair. It shouldn't have happened. That it was, you know, poorly timed. That it's just sour grapes. And you know, very much putting the blame on uh, on Meghan Markle here, saying, you know, she is destroying the royal family and dragging Harry along with her. Um, and then there are others who say, you know, 
look at the history. Look at the the reaction she has had here and in other locations since they got together. She was originally hailed as as sort of a sign that the monarchy was was being modernized, that it was getting with the times, that you know it was reflecting so many families around the world. Right? You know, here's a, a, a yes. mixed race couple that was having a baby, and it was praised. But then it started to fall apart. There was negative press. Um, you know, there has been talk about you know no, the press hasn't been you know had racial tones but uh, you know of course if you if you look a little further there were more than 70 female MPs that wrote a letter saying this seems you know um in contrast to how Kate is being treated and it seems to have some racial tone mm-hmm. so it's not surprising that this is coming up but what she said what she told Oprah what the couple shared about the conversation around you know well the cons- quote unquote concerns around how dark Archie's skin might be you know we hear the the line in the statement saying some recollections may vary. And I think that's key here. But the conversations really depend on, you know, who you are, what color your skin is. Um, I did have a great conversation with a professor from Cambridge who is also an author looking at, you know, post-colonialism, Privada Gopal. And she said, you know, if you want to look and ask the question, institutional racism, is it a problem? Ask someone who is in traditionally white institutions. And, and and if you are that person, you will have a different experience than many. But she also points out that when it comes to um, allowing people to fit in, helping them, uh, you know, sort of be more comfortable in an institution where maybe they aren't the, the majority, the responsibility is on that institution. That's how you diversify. That's how you change. And so she isn't necessarily surprised by the reaction and sort of the, the, um, the divides that are currently created. And those divides seem to be becoming more entrenched. Oh, they certainly do. Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate that. That's Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief, updating us on what's going on in this whole royal family saga. You know what gets me about this story, too, is that anybody who did watch The Crown, particularly that last season talking about uh, Diana and Charles, how can you be surprised that this is even happening? It's happened before. And it, forget The Crown then, too. Just if you, history. If you were around in the last 30 years and you remember everything that happened with the royal family and the breakdown of that marriage and the dueling interviews where Diana went on and did an interview on TV and then Charles went on and did an interview on TV, this is exactly all happened before. And it just is amazing that this family has not learned that, okay, we have to make sure something like that never happens again. So we welcome in new members. I mean, it's happened with Diana. It happened with Sarah Ferguson. It is, it, it happens consistently. And yet the same thing happened here. And it's almost like, you know, they're treating it like this is brand new. And this was an outlier <laughs> when history has shown us it is not at all. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more news on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. Story from Hamilton, Ontario, caught our attention, where the city there is alerting residents about an alleged scam that is offering front-of-the-line COVID-19 vaccine service for a fee. Now, they say officials there have said that they've gotten reports of phone calls that target seniors selling vaccination appointments via credit card or some other way of electronic payment. 
And the city put out a, you know, a social media post saying, listen, this is a scam. Vaccines are free. Watch out for this. And so they know that scams are beginning to be seen across the country. Even Alberta Health Services is warning residents because they heard of numerous episodes where someone over 75 was offered the vaccine for a fee. Also, not true, not happening. So we thought, let's talk about protecting yourself from this. Joining us is Denny Gagnon, president of BCSI Investigations. Denny, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a little distressing, though, to hear about some of these scams, because is there nothing that somebody won't try to take advantage of? <laughs> Anytime there is money involved, there's going to be some kind of scam involved, and especially when you're dealing with a, a clear liquid, such as a vaccine, there is a great opportunity. So we're dealing with the tip of the iceberg, and even Interpol now, which is the global police enforcement, has now been involved with um, enforcement and so on, and now they're saying that um, it could become also a pandemic in regards to what's happening with the vaccine. Do you, have you heard of these kinds of scams out there too? Absolutely. There's a there's been a multitude of different avenues that the criminals are approaching individuals online and so on. And obviously now they're targeting selling counterfeit um, vaccines and also individuals are not helping because as of January, the search for COVID-19 vaccine online through uh, um, an agency that does the research on that has proved that was 264 percent increase in search online for vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine, to bypass the queue. And I just, I guess when you're talking about something that makes people nervous, that there's a lot of anxiety about it, some people will try to cash in, won't they? Exactly. I mean, the, one of the Interpol uh, latest uh, conviction, or, or I would say bust, that they've done, um, where there was 24 doses seized in South Africa, also 3,000 doses seized in China, and they were mineral water, but the profit on those doses, the 3,000 doses, was $2.78 million. So you can imagine that there is a huge amount of profit to be done, and the asking price for those doses were $1,500 a dose. Oh, that's crazy. And yeah, I think and people so, are just desperate enough in some cases to pay that. Well, in, in, in regards to you know bypassing the queue, Australia also has a problem uh, where wealthier Australians now are trying to bypass the queue by going directly to the manufacturer and trying to purchase the the vaccine directly. So this, you know, we're not having only implementation issues in BC, as you know, but we're having the fact that now, I mean, there's clear liquid coming in a bottle. We're lucky here because the health department is controlling it, but these clear, this, those clear bottles may contain something that will be uh, not really a vaccine and could put, obviously, individuals at risk and now we're going to have the side effect of that that people you know there's the trust factor of vaccine and saying that am i really getting a vaccine we're lucky here because it's quite controlled but for example the u.s where there is um you know so many vaccines coming through uh, the chain of supply has to be controlled very very closely and has to be done through barcodes and so on and it's extremely complicated yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so then, Denny, do you have some advice for people? Like, I guess we tell people all the time, uh, you know, just stick to the actual phone call, the website. Like, nobody's going to ask you for money or your credit card number, but you know, some people get nervous, right? Well, number one, the vaccine is not sold online. That's number one, right? So do, you cannot buy the vaccine online at this point. I mean, possibly down the road, there may be some private agency that will carry it, but at this point, the four vaccines we've got, you know, which is the Moderna, the Pfizer, the 
AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, which is coming available now, is not available online. So that's number one. Do not answer phishing emails that ask you to basically, do you want to buy a, a vaccine and so on? We have a deal on the vaccine. And uh, so the un unsolicited emails that are coming to you, they're not real. So that's number two. As well is when you're going to one of those bogus websites, you're opening yourself to spyware and a malware. So you have the double whammy now that you now expose your identity, which is, you know, then you can get hit with other offers that are not vaccine related. So I sound like the bearer of bad news, but this is going to become when there is a huge amount of money involved, such as in the, as the vaccine production, we're going to run into issue where people are going to want to bypass the queue. Well, you know, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's that classic thing, though, isn't it, Denny? It's like if it's too good to be true, it is. Well, they're just that the criminals are so sophisticated that they're using their chain of supply they've used for counterfeit goods in the past. I mean, that goes all the way to, you know, balsamic vinegar, you're, you're a baker, so vanilla extract, all kinds of liquids have been cloned in the past, right? So you don't really know what you're buying if you're going online. So now there is a great opportunity when there is a huge amount of demand and a panic mode, such as, you know, with the vaccine and COVID-19, then those individuals which already have their supply chain in place, are able to just change the product and use the same MO to be able to get to the product to the customer. Okay, so then we, we, no, nobody's going to charge you for this. Nobody's going to ask you for your banking information. What else should people keep in mind? Uh, they could, you know, they, they, they should keep in mind that those individuals, when you when you're putting your information online and you haven't verified the source then the, the, the long-term effect of your identity is going to be extremely problematic down the road because you've been exposed now, as you know, see me, the Internet is global. So now once you've been exposed once, then it takes you a long time to, to recover, you know, from having your right. name, your credit card, your, and, you know, and people ask all kinds of information, passport number and so on. The, nobody asks that. So, you know, the main thing is at this point, the, the vaccine in B.C., I'm going to talk about Canada, is, is supplied through the health departments, and that's it, period. There's nothing online that you can get that's going to replace that, and what's coming online will not be any of those four vaccines. It's going to get even more complex, I mean, when we have more vaccines yeah. coming on board, so are we going to know, you know, if those vaccines are real. So yeah. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but there is, this could be a problem down the road. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Denny, thank you. Have a great day, Simi. You too. Bye-bye. Danny Gagnon is the president of BCSI Investigations warning about fraud surrounding this whole vaccination schedule. As I talked about in, in Hamilton and in other cities, they've been getting phone calls from people saying, you know, I, I've had people phone me up and offer me kind of like front of the line vaccine service for a fee. It doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Uh, people don't pay money to anybody. Don't even pay. You're not paying for your vaccine either. I think that's an important note, right? There is no charge. You don't need to give anybody your credit card uh, to get vaccinated. And the health authorities have been very clear on that. That is not part of the process. So if somebody does ask you that, that is a huge red flag. Do not let that happen. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Rapid testing for COVID-19. This has been a contentious topic in BC for months now. We've had calls to use it for long-term care homes, just calls to use the tests in general. And it's just been resisted, it feels like, by public health officials. But now we're hearing they are starting to use it. One of the people who has advocated widely for this is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. And she joins us now to talk about that. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Sunny. Thank you. What did you think when you heard that it sounds like they're starting to use rapid tests now in long-term care homes? Well, I think it's a good thing. We have a plentiful supply that has been provided to us by the federal government. I think that we have clearly seen that while we are implementing our vaccination program, the virus continues to be with us. We've seen that with this recent outbreak in Kelowna, that being... Uh, The vaccine is not 100% effective in preventing transmission. So I think it is still important for us to maintain a number of our screening protocols. And rapid testing can be a screening protocol that I think can help us identify some cases that may otherwise go unidentified. So, I mean, you've been calling for this for a long time. What kind of response did you get in the past when you were saying, listen, we should be doing this? Well, I think it started, Cindy, even before rapid testing. I think when we look back on our management of this um, virus in long-term care and we look at the actions we we took and the tools we implemented, I think that we will find that the issue of testing initially with PCR testing and later with rapid testing was not as embraced uh, as as it potentially should have been. And part of that has was grounded, I think, in our initial um, understanding of the virus, which is you weren't contagious until you showed symptoms and that the tests were ineffective until you showed symptoms. And we learned as we went through uh, discovery of the virus that indeed a number of people were transmitting the virus to others although they were showing no symptoms. And that if you are shedding the virus, uh, your viral load is high and the test sensitivity will pick that up, whether it's a PCR test or whether it's a rapid test. So there will be questions about whether we should have had surveillance testing with the PCR, for example, back in September, October, when we started to have high community transmission and started to experience outbreaks even before we had the rapid testing approved. Then when rapid testing came onto the scene, what it was going to allow was it's a less sensitive test and it really should not be used as a diagnostic test if you have the PCR available to you, but that it had an effectiveness as what we would call a screening tool. And I think um, that part of the challenge in the public health arena was that it was viewed, uh, its application was viewed in the context of the rigor you would have when using a diagnostic test. So all of the protocols and the tracking and all of the things that are essential when you are actually using a test to take public health measures. When you're using it as a screening tool, arguably, those protocols are not necessary. And I think that's where it got bogged down. It was a combination of, look, 
this test is really not a good diagnostic test. We have the PCR test. Okay. And if we're going to use it as a screening, and it's just, it takes so many uh, people to, to manage it, it's not going to work as a daily or every other day screening. And I think that's where we should have been saying, wait a minute, do we really need all that um, uh, fuss and feathers, if you will, around uh, the administration of these rapid tests when we're really only using them as screening tools? So what has changed then, do you think, to allow them to suddenly be used? Well, some things have changed and some things haven't. Um, there's uh, a protocol that has been put out by uh, the province around how the rapid tests are going to be used. And I think that that's a good thing. But part of the challenge is that in those protocols, they're still managing the rapid test when you're using them as a screening tool in the same way that, that they're managing them when you're using them as a diagnostic test. So the tracking and the, the, the key here to their success uh, as a screening tool is in their simplicity of use. And if it's not simple to use them on a daily or every other day basis, their, their true uh, effectiveness is going to continue to be blunted. And I think we need to ask ourselves, if we look south of the border, uh, there are numerous employees who have dozens and hundreds of people reporting to work every day who do go through a rapid test as a screening protocol without all of the um, uh, tracking, making, you know, having a person sign a consent form every time they have the test, uh, entering into the database right. every day. You know, those, those are necessary for diagnostic tests. There's no argument there from certainly myself and any of us in, in healthcare. The argument is they're not necessary when you're just using it as a screening tool like we're using our health questionnaire. We don't use we don't have all of that tracking for our health questionnaire. Right. Okay. You mentioned um, back there about, you know, what we can learn from this, like what we're going to talk about uh, when all this is said and done. What are those valuable lessons? What are those questions that you have that think, listen, these need to be dealt with when we have time to catch our breath? Well, I do think we we need to look at um, some of the assumptions we made in terms of how we managed it, given um, certainly what British British Columbia is a good case in point because we had a very, very different experience in wave two than wave one. Mm-hmm. Other provinces such as Ontario and Quebec didn't see that distinction to the same degree we did. They had very bad wave ones and bad wave twos. We had a pretty good wave one and a pretty, uh, relatively speaking, bad wave two. So I think we need to start to say, okay, um, what our, our, uh, now that we're looking back on it, what's become clear is that the virus entered uh, care homes through staff to a large extent through asymptomatic staff. So we had a, a protection system based on screening that was based on whether you show symptoms. We didn't have any protocol in place at any point in time to screen staff um, either with PCR to do what we would call surveillance testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, was there a point at which that made sense? Maybe it doesn't make sense when you've got very low community transmission, low positivity. Maybe it makes sense when your community transmission and positivity rates meet a certain threshold around certain care homes. I think we need to look at that. I think that our our additional layer of protection, PPE, we need to look at uh, how effective that was. It, it clearly wasn't as effective as we had hoped when you see 
what happened in wave two and why was that? Uh, do we, did we need to do better training? Did we need to implement more universal orders around masks for the entirety of the shift? Did we find, and, and my office is looking at this right now, um, there were, there's a basic layer of PPE, uh, but some right. care homes did additional layers. Did that offer additional protection? We, now that we are going to, hopefully, we now are looking back on the pandemic and long-term care, and we're gaining some distance. We're going to have the ability to, um, in, uh, in, a, in a rational environment, look at these factors and say, okay, this is what we've learned. Remembering when we started out, we said, we learn from every pandemic. Mm-hmm. So clearly, we're going to learn from this one as well. And, um, I, I, and I do think that, that we will come to the conclusion that there are things the next time that we should be doing a little bit differently than we did this time. I sure hope so. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, I appreciate your interest. Thank you. That's Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, talking about the use of rapid testing now in some long-term care home situations. The government is saying, okay, yes, we're going to use this. Uh, very quietly moving that in there, even though lots of people have been advocating for this, including Isabel McKenzie, for quite some time. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, for the second night in a row, the Vancouver Park Board failed to decide on a motion to reinstate a bike lane in Stanley Park. So last night was supposed to be a continuation of the regular Monday night meeting where this whole Stanley Park bike lane was supposed to be discussed. But they talked about a bunch of other stuff, right? Uh, An urban food forest, a whole bunch of other things. The bike lane motion was moved to another meeting. What is going on here? To talk more about what happened last night, Trisha Barker joins us now, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for talking about this this morning, Timmy. Yeah, why is this being moved off again? Well, um, you know, we, different issues come up at the Park Board. And uh, the, I guess the biggest thing to look at with this is, yes, the Stanley Park issue did get pushed off. But... These other people, 43 people, had the opportunity to phone in and talk to the commissioners about their issue with their park. And we were so compelled, Commissioner Cooper and I, with their stories, we went down to their park yesterday and agreed with them. So they got what they wanted um, at the park board because they got to actually speak with us. So that went for two nights. And then late last night, um, we had uh, some bylaw issues come up. And we had to vote on those. And unfortunately, um, the Green Cope Alliance voted against um, allowing a minority group at the park board to um, put forward a special meeting so people could come and speak to them. So it was really a major impact. And that happened at 11 o'clock last night. So now we get to tonight and we're going to finally talk about Stanley Park. But those, uh, that impact of the bylaw, you know, people, it's very likely that people won't be able to phone in and give their concerns about what's going to happen to Stanley Park. Okay, so uh, why is that? Like, you would think that a process like this, which affects the public so much, is there not already like a public hearing process for a decision like this? Is there not a public uh, consultation mechanism? No, there's not. You can send an email in. But if the majority of the people at the park board decide they don't want to have the public speak to it 
and be able to phone in or like we used to be able to go into and, uh, you know, speak directly to them, uh, they can say no. And that was the, the shock last night that, uh, you know, that, that they're even going to change the bylaw. So you don't have the ability for the minority to make that happen. Right. So I so, should explain that to people then, Tricia. So what you're saying is that right now, two park board commissioners can, if you get two of them together, can say, hey, we need to hear from the public on this. Yes. And they're looking to change that? Yeah, the vote last night said we're going to change that. So that will no longer be able to happen. And last time we did call a special meeting, it was about Stanley Park. So all of that aside, we're going to be there tonight. Uh, Commissioner Cooper and I are going to request that uh, the Stanley Park issue gets put to committee so the public can have the opportunity to speak to it. But the majority does have the right to say, nope, we, we, we don't need to do that. So let's vote on it tonight. And uh, that's very disturbing. Okay, so you're saying then potentially tonight they could just vote on it and make the decision without further hearing from the public on this? Exactly. Okay, this doesn't sound very inclusive, Trisha, I have to say. For a park board that is supposed to be about making sure people get represented when it comes to parks and outdoor spaces, this does not sound like that. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. And it's 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 so frustrating because um, you know, we've got, I think it's, 233 emails. I'm trying to answer them. I write people back from people just devastated about not being able to easily get into Stanley Park. And it's very much discrimination against uh, people who have mobility issues. We've already heard from the City of Vancouver People with Disabilities Committee and their concerns about this. So there's so many aspects to this. And if we don't let all of this thing come publicly forward, um, we don't shine a light on it. And I know that it's been very frustrating for the public to hear about this back and forth with the commissioners. But, um, yeah, there's a huge concern. Stanley Park is our jewel. So many people care about this park and a lot of people are going to be shut out. And that's not even talking about the aspect that covers off the restaurants and all the different um, businesses that operate in there. So you're saying even in this process, those businesses that operate in Stanley Park, they don't have the right to have a say? Not publicly. In, you know, They can write emails, but not publicly. You won't get to hear them talk directly to the commissioners. This seems very backwards. Like This wouldn't happen at other levels of like municipal government. Well, it's, it is just so shocking. And you know, the vote last night, it was a vote to change the Vancouver Charter so we couldn't um, have the minority ask for the people to be able to speak. So very, very concerning uh, and, and actually very shocking. I'm sure for the people watching late last night, it was written all over my face. Um, I could not believe this was happening. So then, okay, tonight is another kick at this can. Yes. Six o'clock and Commissioner Cooper and I will do everything we can to try to uh, get the Green Cope Alliance to um, put a hold on the bike lane, let everyone speak, and remember that we were supposed to wait. We were supposed to leave Stanley Park alone and wait until we got this big report. And yeah. that was going to be next year. And they decided, no, uh, we'll put the temporary bike lane back in. All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk more about this. Trisha, thank you. Thank you. Trisha Barker, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner.